So you can see behind me, maybe you can't see, he does own a coat. I wore one, but I've got so much other stuff on that I don't even, am I still connected somewhere? I'm still connected somewhere. There we go. Good grief. All right, it's coming out. There we go. All right. We're good. Hey, um, I, don't, I know this is probably lost on many of us, right? Because we do this every week. You know how weird it is what we're doing right now, right? I mean, think about it. What other place in our culture are you going to go somewhere where you're going to sit? You're going to sing songs with other people as a group plays up front or, you know, or you're in a, let's say you're in a, in a higher church context where there's an organ and a bunch of people singing in robes. And then you're going to recite some stuff back and forth. Like if you're visiting here this morning, you're, you're new to church and Vic was up here praying and all of a sudden everyone just broke out in prayer and you're like, this chant of the Lord's prayer. You, you didn't even know what was happening, did you? Like you were like, what is happening right now? It's weird. And now someone's going to sit up and stand and, and, and like talk for like, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. It's weird. I think it's lost on us a lot because we become so immune to it. But like when you invite your friends and your neighbors to come and, and, and worship with you, don't let it be lost on you. This is, this is not normal. But we long for the day when it will be. When the worship of God, when the, the adoration that we give will be not just something we do and something that we feel safe to do, but something that is done everywhere in every tribe, tongue, and nation. We are in week two of our, uh, of our jaunt, rather long jaunt, if we're being honest, through the book of Galatians. Galatians, one of Paul's letters. Paul is an early Christian leader, crazy, intense dude. He's the kind of guy that, um, you know, if you're into intensity, you would have loved him. He went from intensely against Christians to intensely for them. He went from thinking Jesus was a fraud to thinking Jesus was Lord in like a second. He's planted a bunch of churches throughout the Mediterranean world. And these churches in this area of southern Turkey, now he's, he's writing to because, well, we'll see why. This week we come to Paul's amazement over the fact that there seems to be disagreement over the central message of Christianity. The central message, like the core. And like any other system, like any other uh, belief system, like, you know, Christianity has its, its trunk and it's got its branches and it's got its little branches that go out from those branches and some Christians disagree about those things, but the trunk, the core. Is there room for disagreement about that? Well, that's what Paul's going to talk to us about this morning. So we're in Galatians 1, verses 6 to 10. If you'd stand, we stand on the authority of God's Word, all of us, including myself. This is God's Word. I am astonished 
that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Am I now seeking to have the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is God's word given so that we would flourish. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you know. Uh, you know what's going on in my heart. How busy my heart is right now with so many things. Thinking about details, not wanting to mess anything up. <sighs> Forgetting the freedom to play that is ours in you. Help us to see that this morning. Open our eyes to see Jesus. That his gospel might not just be something that we, yes, we know the right answers, but let it be precious to us today. Let it be precious to us. Because it is the announcement of what was precious to you. The work, the life, the death, the resurrection of your son. Make Jesus big in our hearts. Let everything he has done come to the forefront. Everything else, including the one he's talking, fall away. You, Lord, have the words of eternal life. So speak, your servants are listening, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So you probably know this, uh, but we live in an era where um, it seems like everyone is run out of good ideas for movies and stories, so we live in the era of retellings, Right? Several years ago, it's old now, I don't think it's on Turner Classic Movies yet, but it's, you know, on the, on the way was the retelling of Snow White as a warrior princess. Snow White and the Huntsman, I think there was a sequel to that, I don't know. You have the great Gadsby being redone with techno dance and hip-hop music, it's awesome. I don't know if you knew this, but the old rom-com, not that I would know, I haven't seen it, of course, but uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, that was a retelling of Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. We love retellings. And in some, sort, in some cases, these retellings are true to the spirit of the original. Sometimes they're loosely based on them, and sometimes it's just the names that are the same, right? It's just the names. Some things are true and some aren't. That's what Paul's arguing here. Is, is there something that tells us what a retelling of the gospel is and whether that retelling is faithful to the original? Is it faithful? Or is it just something else? Is it a substitute? He brought the gospel of Jesus to these folks and now they are in danger of substituting a false one. So as always, there's an outline for you if you like to take notes. For those of you who are new to Presbyterianism, that is, that's our amen. It's okay. There's a reason why everything's quiet. At best, we like to nudge our person next to us mm, and point. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, I get it. I see you, and I appreciate it. I also appreciate vocal feedback, too. So anyway, but anyway, let's get into this. Okay, let's begin with the mixed message. 
uh, by being amazed at abandonment. Look down at verse 6. Paul says, I am amazed that so quickly you have abandoned the one who called you by his grace for a different gospel. Now, if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, if you've read it, or if Paul's familiar to you, which, you know, in our tradition, Paul's a really big deal. Um, so if you're familiar at all with Paul's letters, you'll notice, or maybe you didn't notice, but if you, if you didn't, you're about to, that something was missing. In all of Paul's letters, he goes from his greeting, which we talked about last week, to some kind of thankfulness. I thank my God for you. If you were here on Friday night, you heard, you heard Stephen recite it, you know, the beginning to Philippians. I, I thank my God for you. I praise God for you. I'm always giving thanks for you. And <laughs> not here. Here he jumps right into the problem, which gives you the sense of what's going on in Paul's heart, Right? I know we think of all of our religious figures in this stoic monotone, but Paul is angry, frustrated. We'll say frustrated. That's a nicer word, right? We don't want to say angry. That's what it means, but we'll just say frustrated. He's frustrated, and he's frustrated because of this problem, and Paul describes this problem as deserting or abandoning, depending on your translation, the one who called them by his grace. Now, if you're new to the Bible and you hear him say that, you think he's talking about him, right? The one who called, you're like, he's abandoned, he's, he's mad because they're, they're pulling away from him. And that would be uh, something that, that would be understandable because more than likely what has happened is that Paul planted these churches all through southern Turkey and then he moved on and some other guys came in behind him and they were like, Paul, he's okay for what it is. But, it, you know, let's, let's not run ahead of things. And so maybe in some measure, it would make sense if he's saying, like, I can't believe you've abandoned me. But he's not. Paul never uses that word about himself. It's always God who calls us to himself. When he says they've been called by his grace, he's not talking about him. He's not talking about the one who called them being him. He's talking about the one who called them being God. Whatever is going on here, Paul, amounts it, uh, Paul says it amounts to abandoning or deserting God. Now, that word that the ESV translates deserting is very, very interesting. <coughs> Excuse me. If you were uh, Jewish in the first century world, there was, there was a story that you kind of held to. Some of it was biblical, and then some of it went beyond the Bible. And that part of the story had to do with um, this, this rebellion, this rebellion that went on um, in, this, in this intervening time between when the Old Testament stopped and the New Testament began. And the books that you would go to to tell you that story came by the name of the Maccabees. And that's because there was a family um, that kind of went by that name. And in those books of Maccabees, when it uses that word deserting, that our ESV translates deserting, it always meant what Christians now call apostasy turning away and leaving God, which was a big deal. Big deal during the time of the Maccabees. It was something that even during their time was seen as heinous. As a matter of fact, it was, it was something uh, almost worthy of, 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 for some people, of wanting to put that person to death. And so Paul is saying that what they're doing amounts to apostasy. Now, here's the important part. 
And I know some of us really aren't big on the grammar, but this is where it really matters. The, uh, in, in the original, that, that word, abandon or deserting, is kind of in a present context, present tense, which means it's, it's something that is ongoing. It hasn't happened, it's not definitive, but the process is happening. Paul is telling the Galatians, I am astonished. I gave you the gospel, and you right now are in the process of abandoning it all. Walking away from Jesus. Now, when he says you're abandoning this one who's called you by grace, and then talks about doing it for a different gospel, we need to understand what that means, right? Because for some of us, gospel is a kind of music, right? It's a certain style of music. Some of us who, are, who, are in, who have been in the church a long time, it's a churchy word, and by churchy word, what I mean is all of us nod and smile, but many of us aren't really sure exactly what it is, right? But we know we're supposed to, so we're like, mm-hmm, gospel, yeah? Uh, it's, it is a very important term, It's a very important term in the ancient world. It's a very important term, obviously, for Christians. It means, obviously, good news. You've probably heard that before, but this is important. It's the kind of news you would get from someone when your your city, your, 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 we'll say your city, let's say, let's say Orlando was having a fight with Tampa, right? Maybe better. Tallahassee and Gainesville, Okay. Tallahassee's fighting Gainesville, and they're going to meet somewhere in the middle, and they're going to fight, you know, and they're orange and blue, and they're burgundy and gold. They're going to come out, and they're going to fight each other, and as they're more moving out into the field of battle, there are some of us that are left behind, and we're not entirely certain what's going on because there's no cameras or anything like this, but someone, whenever the battle is done, is going to run back and tell us what the news is. And if they won, it's called gospel. It's good news. Good news that has, there is something that has happened that has changed everything for you, and specifically that whew, your side won. And so when we're talking about this idea of the gospel, it implies that there is something, if you're going to get good news, it implies that something bad has gone on. And that now there's something that has changed all that. Everything is different. So what's he talking about? What is this gospel? Well, this is important because it it not only makes sense of Galatians, not only of Christianity, but also of our experience of the world. Because you see, every one of us in this room, whether you're Christian or not, we know that things are not quite right. Right? Like, we, we know intuitively, or maybe more than intuitively, like something is not the way it's supposed to be, which is really, really weird, because how do we determine what it's supposed to be? But we all know. And so the Bible teaches that, yeah, this is actually the case. It actually affirms that. Yes, your intuition is right. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Because in, in, in the, the, the story that the Bible kind of tells, humanity was created from, for God but has turned from Him. We've gone our own way. We've abandoned Him. And, and so it has thrown everything into chaos. There, sure, there's still beauty, but it's all marred by brokenness. But God promised to make something different. He promised to change everything. 
There is a bad situation that needs changing. We are guilty before God for betraying him, and we are also broken, stuck in that change and bent in on ourselves. But God decided to, make some, to, to change things. In fact, that was the entire story of the Bible since then. And that's the gospel that Paul proclaims, that God has done something to change that. And this is where Jesus comes in. Jesus comes in to rescue us. You can't rescue yourself if you're like dying. It's very difficult to make yourself not, right? If you're drowning, you can't save yourself. You need someone who can come and to deal with it. And that's what Jesus did by living the life that we couldn't, by bearing uh, the, the consequences of our sin and rising again to give us a fresh taste of the world that God is bringing. That is the gospel. That is the gospel, which is to say the gospel is not a suggestion. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is not, come be good like me. The gospel is news of something that has happened. Word from the battle. Jesus won. There's the battle. There's the news. That is the gospel. And Paul says, in giving this up, they have turned their backs on God. Now that brings us to the troublemakers. Look down at verse 7. Paul says, you know, you're banning this for a gospel, which isn't really another gospel. What he means by that, by the way, is that what you've abandoned, what you've turned from, or what you've turned towards, isn't really good news, if you think about it, which he'll get to why in a second, or, or later on in the book, but it's like this isn't even a gospel. But some are troubling you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, what we learn here and later, it's like I said, soon after Paul had planted these churches, other teachers arrived. And these teachers came along, and they were saying things like, they, they showed up to a, to a congregation filled with um, Gentiles. And if you're not familiar with that term, the Jew, Jewish people in the first century broke up the entire world into two kinds of people, Jews and everybody else. You were Jewish, or not everybody, or uh, you're Jewish or everybody else. It's like the Dutch. If you're not Dutch, you ain't much. Like, it's the same kind of thing. It's Jewish people and everybody else. I'm not Dutch, so, you know. Uh, but I'm not much either. Um, so you had Gentiles, and yet they're following the Jewish Messiah. But there's a difference about these Gentiles. You see, if a Greek dude wanted to become a Jewish, he could do that. It was a process. You, you went through, you, obviously, you learned a little bit about what it means to follow the God of Abraham. You, you, uh, there was some cleansings you had to do because, you know, dirty. And then there's all this stuff. And then there's one final act to become Jewish. It's a minor surgery. <laughs> but if you're a guy, it's not that minor. And strange... None of these guys had gone through this. And so if you're Jewish and you're coming from Israel or from Judea and you, you show up and you see all these guys who say they're following the Jewish Messiah, but they're not Jewish. They haven't become Jewish. They're not taking on themselves what it means to follow the Jewish Messiah in their minds. They say, listen, Paul's great, but he was just trying to take it easy on y'all. We get it, but who is this guy anyway, right? I mean, who is Paul? We came from Jerusalem. We came from Peter, from James. You've heard of them, right? 
We talk about the life of Jesus. You can't, you can't not talk about Peter. Who is this Paul guy, Johnny come lately? He's just trying to please you guys. He's trying to take it easy on you. In other words, he's saying if you want to follow the Jewish Messiah, if you want to be part of the rescue of God, you need Jesus and you need something else. Jesus is important. He's great. But listen, there's other things that go into this than just him. You with me? Now, two things to say about this. First, like I said, Paul says this is not a gospel at all. In other words, there's what he preached, then there's everything else. There's what he came along and proclaimed, then there's whatever else is out there. What he preaches is the gospel. And if you're adding anything, look at me, if you're adding anything to the work of Jesus, it ceases to be gospel. If it's Jesus plus baptism, if it's Jesus plus, uh, you know, our worship forms, if it's Jesus plus, um, I don't know, the way you vote, if it's Jesus plus anything, Paul goes, that's not a gospel. That's not a gospel at all. Jesus plus anything gives you nothing. Second, that word that Paul used to say that they're troubling you, that's the same word that you would use in the Roman world if you would talk about people that went in and stirred up the mob. Not like, not the mob. Like, you know what I mean? Like a big group of people, not organized crime. Like, they would go in and stir up the mob to, to do something. Okay? It means to confuse the issue. And so what Paul is saying is you're, they're not giving you the gospel. They're giving you a distortion of it. There isn't room here for interpretations. I know this isn't popular, but listen, listen. We just at least understand what Paul's saying before we can get into whether or not we think that's okay. Right? Let's at least go with like this is what the book is saying. Whether we agree with it or not, let's at least agree on the fact that this is what it's saying. Saying that there's, there's the gospel and it's not. There's not an interpretation. There's not a gray area. There is what the gospel is, and then there's everything it's not. What is at stake for Paul is the central teaching of Christianity, so much so that Paul could say that in turning away from the gospel, you are abandoning God. Apostasy. Walking away. That leads us to cursing and pleasing, not literal cursing. But look, look down at verse 8. I'm not that kind of preacher, don't worry. Paul says, but if we or an angel from heaven preach a gospel to you other than what was preached, let him be cursed. Okay? Let's stop there because Paul basically repeats himself. This is Paul getting, like, real. I mean, who says this? I, listen, we pretty up some of the language. Accursed. We make that real pretty. Literally, he's saying, literally, He's saying, if someone comes to you and preaches a gospel to you other than what was preached, let him go to hell. In our culture, we are not okay with this kind of language, right? At least not being applied to religious ideas. We'll do it on social media, the people we disagree with. But like in, in our world, if we heard someone saying this, we'd be like, Dude needs some Lexapro, you know, like some, some Prozac would be nice uh, at this point. 
something to calm him down. But this is important. Paul is saying, because he repeats it, he's basically saying, I don't care if it's them, I don't care if it's me, or an angel from heaven. Like if you get the, which what he's not saying at that moment is that like everyone had angels from heaven preaching them. He's giving a, even if it were this kind of thing, he's like, if it's them preaching and they're preaching you a gospel that's not the gospel, here's what I think should happen to them. If it were me, I'd think the same thing. And even if it were some like angelic vision, the exact same thing. Why would he say something like this? Because most of us, if we heard something like this, this forcefully, we would probably like get up and leave. I'm not saying he's doing that for this reason. <laughs> for Christians, though, this is a big deal. And the reason why, listen to me, the reason why this is a big deal is because people are at stake. It's not a big deal because our idea, we're like, you know what, our ideas are what matters and being right is what matters. No, no, no. This is a big deal because people are at stake. If the Bible is right and we are all by nature, by nature, betrayers of God, and that we will answer for that in eternity. And if the Bible is also right, that God has provided a way to be reconciled to him in Jesus. And I knew that and came to you with a different option, one that didn't work, I have sentenced you to hell. That is not okay. You may not agree with that, but please understand the heart of those who say that kind of thing to you. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're like, I don't, the idea of spreading your faith or whatever is just like anathema or uh, is another churchy term, is um, just awful to you. Understand that the heart of those that are trying to do it is this. They're not like, hey, we need another person on our team. It's, you're at stake. They're not trying to conform you. They believe, and you disagree, and that's okay right now, but they believe they're trying to save you. Now, of course, in our day, we would say that Paul's doing this to secure his power base, right? That's what we've been taught. Uh, people who make um, exclusive religious claims, people who make exclusive claims of any kind, truth claims, that all they're doing is trying to secure their power base. They just want to make sure that they're in control. And that is why Paul says, verse 10, because he's being accused of that. He's being accused of that. Am I just trying to please men? Am I trying to get people on my team? Well, Paul is saying, what you need to understand is this isn't about me. If I preach something different, I deserve exactly what they do, and it's not good. And he knows that statement is offensive, but he means it. Paul is saying that getting the gospel right is a big enough deal that those who preach a false one, who lead others into thinking that they are believing, that they are okay, when before God they aren't, who scorn the way of God, who scorn the way that God choose, chose to, to rescue humanity in the world, that they should receive eternal curse. Again, listen, if you're here and you're like, I don't believe a lick of that, I, that's, that's okay. We'll talk about it here in a second. But let's at least, again, be clear on what's being said, okay? 
Now, that brings us to a clear message. Let's begin with true and false. And like I said, some of us here, when we hear this, we get offended because we think what Paul's doing is crazy intolerant, right? Because Paul's saying, I've given you the truth. I've given you the only way to be right with God, and these others aren't true. And we hate that, right? God, we're like, it's so arrogant. It's terrible. We hate truth claims. But listen, everybody makes truth claims. You see, we, we, we have, in our, in our Western hubris, we have, we have come in and we've said that any kind of worldview that makes an exclusive claim on what is or what is not true, what they're trying to do is some version of cultural imperialism, which is to say they're trying to sweep in and make, it, uh, make, make everyone agree with them. But do you realize that the only people who believe that are Westerners, who then are telling everyone in the world, you have to believe this, which is cultural imperialism. Like, it's, it's not that that's a self-evidential truth. We can't prove that to be true, right? All religious claims are the same. How do you prove that? You can't. You just believe it. It's an assumption, right? Everyone makes exclusive truth claims. To say that there's no such thing as objective truth or religious truth or whatever is a truth claim that you're now telling me if that's, if that's what you're saying, that I have to believe that. Everyone makes a claim like that. And what's more, most of us think that this is intolerant because of the assumption that Christianity is, is somehow very similar to other religious systems like uh, Buddhism or, or um, you know, even self-help to some degree, that it's kind of an esoteric teaching. We think it's about a morality. It isn't, which is not to say that Christianity doesn't have a morality. It does, but the gospel is not a morality. The gospel is news about events. It's news about public truth, something that happened in space and time. It's not intolerant to say that the Union Army won the Battle of Gettysburg, nor is it intolerant to say that Caesar crossed the Rubicon. Those were events that happened. Christians, Christianity, again, you may not believe this, but at least understand what we're getting at. Christianity is public truth. It makes claims about something that happened. Was it amazing? Yeah. Was it unexpected? Absolutely. Was it strange? Yes. But it says that Jesus lived, made claims about himself and us, died and rose again from the dead, appeared to a bunch of people, some of whom didn't believe in him, by the way, and then ascended bodily into happen. Either that happened or it didn't. But let's not say my Christianity is accepting everyone or that, you know, uh, my Christianity is, is, is being really nice. That is not the gospel. The gospel simply declares something that happened and then asks us, what are you going to do with that? That's it. It is no more imposing a system on us than to say that, you know, uh, last week the SpaceX rocket shot off. Saw it from my office. I don't know how far it got, but I saw it go up when it went up. That's not intolerant. Now, 
what you do with that, I guess. I mean, you can choose to do something with it. But that's the gospel. It's simply news of what happened. We may not like the truth. We may be offended by the reality of it. But that does not change it. To change the gospel, to change the fundamental declaration of Christianity, is to make it no gospel. It is to make it not Christianity. Not simply a variation on a theme. You with me? That's what Paul is saying. But this is really common, so let me make clear what is not the gospel according to the Bible. And listen, if I, if I'm, if I end up stepping on your toes, uh, I'm sorry. No, not really, actually. And I say that because I care about you. Okay? First, the gospel is not God will accept me because I'm moral, sincere, hardworking, or mean well. If that's the case, Jesus' death was not necessary. It's like God the Son just made a mistake with his life. And if you believe that this morning, let me ask you something. How much is enough? How much morality is enough? How much sincerity is enough? How sincere do you have to be? How much niceness is enough? Is there any time that you can just go, okay, I've arrived? No. You can't, can you? You're tired. You're really tired. I know. I'm sorry. Someone sold you a false bill. That is not the gospel. Perhaps better even than that would be not only how much is enough, but perhaps a better one would be who's definition of moral or sincere i mean jesus jesus said that you know if you're hating someone in your heart you might as well have murdered them that's jesus right that's whew. isn't it kind of funny how we always tend to think that god only cares about the one the the, the numbers the the commandments that we do it's like i mean he's really big on these four but this one is i mean he doesn't really care that much about that one. It's so funny, isn't it? So cool, so convenient that God seems to just care about the same things you do. For good news to be good, it has to give us something that's more than just try hard. The second is that the gospel is not God will accept me because I'm tolerant. First and foremost, for the life of me, and I do not mean this to be funny, but for the life of me, I cannot find where tolerance is a virtue in the scriptures. I just can't find it. Jesus certainly didn't practice it. He called people to leave their lives and behaviors and follow him. Like, I know you've got a great business as a tax collector, Matthew. Abandon it all. And come walk behind me. Not, hey, you could do this on the side. Don't worry. I'm just going to talk at you on Saturdays. It's like, no, no, no. You're done with that. 
You can't do that anymore. Come with me. He called them to follow him. He called them to go and sin no more. Did he hang out with sinners? Of course. He couldn't have been in the world and not do that. But his call was consistently for us to leave those things behind and follow him, to be with him. Consistently. To trust him. To order our lives around him. But second, and this is the one that just kind of starts to like turn your mind in circles. If, if you're saying that God accepts you because you're tolerant, you're implicitly saying God does not accept the intolerant person, which is just another way of saying God accepts me because I'm good. You've just changed the definition of good. You've changed it to tolerant, right? So Jesus never had to die. You don't need grace. And God is lucky to have you because you are really tolerant. But what do you do with the fact that you don't tend to be tolerant towards intolerant people? Is it okay to not be tolerant towards them? Or is God only happy when you're tolerant towards other tolerant people? How does that work? How much tolerance is enough? I wonder. Third, and I need you to listen closely on this one, because this is, this is going to be, a, might sound a little confusing. The gospel is not God accepts me because I have faith. Now, this may shock some of you, but hear me out. Faith does not save us. Jesus saves us. Are we saved through faith, through an instrumentality of faith? Yes. Does faith itself save us? No, and praise God it doesn't, because I wake up some mornings and have none of it. Like barely any. And it's those mornings that I'm so glad that it's Jesus that's holding on to me and not me to him. And so how much faith is enough? How strong in your faith do you have to feel to be confident that God has rescued you from your sins? Are you feeling it this morning? Is it in like by the middle of the third song? What it, how much? You are not saved by faith, you are saved through faith. When we believe that God accepts me because of my strong faith in him, my trust in him, we have set up a standard outside of Jesus. It's not Jesus' work that makes us right. It's not Jesus' righteousness, his his record, his goodness that determines God's perspective on us. It's how faithful I feel that day. So when our faith starts to shake, and it does, let's stop pretending that it doesn't. We begin to wonder if God accepts us. <laughs> Let me be clear. Inviting Jesus into your heart does not save you. Jesus does. His performance, not the performance of your faith, makes things right between you and God. Now, does it come to you by faith? Sure. But let's not confuse it, okay? Lastly, the gospel is not some variation of God wants me to be happy, God wants me to be rich, God wants me to never be sick. In some circles, that is called the prosperity gospel. It's about prosperity, but it's not a gospel, okay? Let me be as clear as I can. That is a false gospel. 
and it warrants the curse that Paul lays out here. This is a variation on the theme of faith saves me. Because it says, if I have enough faith, God will bless me. But let me be clear to all of us, God is not a Coke machine. You don't put in your faith quarter, press your button, and get your blessing. That is not the way it works. If that is the case, that having enough faith will keep you well and rich, then Paul didn't have enough, Peter didn't have enough, James and John didn't have enough, none of the apostles had enough, and neither did Jesus. Isn't it convenient that the sign that you are being faithful is often wrapped up in giving money to the preacher proclaiming that you are going to get rich from it? All right, so what's left? What's left is what the New Testament gives us. The gospel is wonderful news. It's wonderful news that God has finally come and fulfilled his promise to make the world right, to make us right. It's that, yes, we're lost and in need of rescue. Yes, it's worse than you think. Yes, it's not just some of us, it's all of us. Some of us are lost in our morality and our self-righteousness, and others of us are lost in our immorality and defiance, but we're all in need of rescue. And so Jesus came and lived a sinless life that none of our morality could reach. Not a bit of it. It was just so much greater than anything we could imagine. Unbroken, every second, every breath, dependent on God and pleasing to Him. Not scales measuring out at the end of the day. Like you just throw the scale away. There's His record. You can't outperform it. But also that He died for every bit of our sinfulness. Yes, the sights you looked at last night. Yes, the fact that you drank too much this weekend. Yes, the fact that you're hooked on something you can't seem to get yourself off of. Yes, the fact that, that you, you perpetually scream at your kids. Yes, the fact you cheat on your taxes, you do the things that you know you're not supposed to do, and you tell yourself every morning you're not going to do it today, and then at the end of the night you say, why did I do it again? And he died for every instance of it. And you cannot outsin it. God came in Jesus to live the sinless life that we couldn't and die to bear the judgment that was due for our betrayal. That is the work that makes us right before God. That right there. We are called to turn from our pursuit to make ourselves right, either through moralism or immorality, and instead just place your faith on Him. He is enough. Say, I, yes, I know I've done it all bad, but He's enough. Yes, I know that I seem to look good on the outside, but I know what's wrong with me inside, but He's enough. That is the good news. It is a finished work, which means you don't have to keep it up. You can rest. You can play. You can have freedom. He's enough. And it's open to all who come, not just the good, the tolerant, or the sincere, but to the weak, the broken, the struggling, the notorious, and the helpless. It tells us that we are, in fact, far more broken than we could have ever imagined. I don't care what you look like in here. It is way worse than you think it is. 
but you are also more loved than you could ever imagine. Last thing. If you're a Christian here this morning and you're tempted to think, Rick, I already got this. So did they. So did they. They're good church members. Paul planted these churches. He planted them. They're, they're church members. They have elders. They got deacons. He set them all up. And quickly, he says, it's amazing how quickly you have turned away to abandon the grace of the one who called you. We quickly abandon the gospel because it is easy, look, it is easy to begin thinking, I did this. It's easy to begin thinking, you know, I'm pretty good. It's easy to begin thinking, you know, when my life was a train wreck, this was really awesome. But now, I mean, I've figured this thing out. I've got it going. I'm doing all right. I mean, at least way better than Eglin. Right? I mean, I figured it out. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. No, you haven't figured it out. By his grace, you will continue in him. And by his grace, one day, he will transform you. So that it will be figured out. But not by you. That is what you will always hear in this place. And if you're like, Rick, that is, that is milk. I'm looking for meat. Do you understand that the prayer that we prayed today by this this, you know, he's kind of famous, Martin Luther guy, you realize that he said, I need every day to pound the gospel into my head with a hammer. There's a fun image. (laughs) We need it every day, and the implications of it, the outworking of it, is meatier than you can ever imagine. That is why you will, so long as I stand here, that is what you will hear. So let us return again to the Lord who accepts us based on on what we do, but on what he has done. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I give you great thanks for this little book of the Bible that we call Galatians because I need it. Because I so quickly can abandon the one who has called me by his grace. And I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room, even if I'm in the minority. I'm thankful for it because we need it, and I need it, and I pray that you would use this next, I don't know, six months or so as we're going through this book, to remind us and to grow us in our understanding of that gospel, to deepen our need for it and our reception of that need and to give glory to you that as we see that need go deeper and deeper, it makes the cross become bigger and bigger and bigger, which makes our lives 
become more oriented towards praise to you. Let that be the truth of UPC. If you don't do this, it will never happen. So we pray you would do it. We pray it in Jesus' name.